brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. Part of um, willingness to pay uh, has to do with, um, you know, whether the best students are willing to pay full price at a more selective school, but not willing to pay full price at a slightly less one, right? So in effect, that they, they were buying students, good students through these discounts. The problem is once that starts to churn through the marketplace year after year, other competitors have to do the same thing or they're going to lose even more students. And so over the course of just 20 or 25 years, nearly everybody had to start offering this merit aid with the exception of the 40 or 50 most selective schools in the country. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. My guest today is Ron Lieber. Ron has been the Your Money columnist for the New York Times since 2008. Before joining the Times, he wrote the Green Thumb personal finance column for the Wall Street Journal. Ron Lieber is the author of The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money, which was an instant New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller when it was released in 2015. His second book, The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make came out just a few weeks ago. Ron, thanks so much for joining me. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is this is a great <laughs> book. Uh, you know, I, I kind of work in kind of part of the college admissions process, uh, and I think I know. And I have a son who's a freshman in college, and I and I like to think I know somewhat about this business. But boy, this was uh, this was w- wonderfully wonderfully eye opening um, in both some ways that make me want what left of my hair sort of pull out of my head, but also some ways that were incredibly useful and really instructive. Um, if I may, can you just sort of jump off of why did you write? This this book now. Sure. So here's what happened. The phone started to ring and the email started to ping with increasing frequency starting probably around 2014, 2015, as I began to age as a person as a, and, and as a parent into the cohort of people where, you know, some of my peers who were early breeders started to send their first kid to college. And they kept saying to me, Hey, Ron, you know, you've spilled all of this ink in the New York Times over the question of how to save for college and how to pay for college and not getting yourself into trouble with student loans. But I've got a different problem here, which is that nobody raised a flag and told me that the flagship state university had passed $100,000 for four years. And I cannot believe that the school I went to 30 years ago now costs over $300,000 at at the rack rate. And I don't understand the financial aid system. And I don't understand all of these merit aid offers that are coming our way. And what I really don't understand, right, is how I'm supposed to figure out if the $300,000 school is really $200,000 better than the state university. And I know we live in the age of big data. So why can't you sort this out for me in your college? (laughs) (laughs) because the new york times just isn't quite long enough uh so we have a book so so i i love um i think it's a great way to frame this up for people and if i if i kind of repeat that back i hear I, i hear sort of three things in there one there is understanding the cost like what the rack rate as you describe it kind of what the heck has happened what is going on what's the price i'm actually going to pay when we take into account all these different ways that the prices get you know discounted and then three and this is the part i love the most honestly is value uh and i hopefully we can go through these in turn but let's let's start let's because it's the most hair raising and i'm sure the thing that people you know just want to get behind them explain to us a little bit about why costs have seemingly seemingly gone through you know to, to your more to the moon um in the last 20 years 
Sure. So I guess first we have to have a word about words, right? Because price and cost have very kind of specific um, meanings in this context, right? So price could be the rack rate, the list price at Mm -hmm. these institutions. And people may also think of the price as the price that they are actually going to pay. Right. So it turns out that most people are not paying the list price, although the more affluent you are, uh, the more likely it is that you are paying the list price. So, you know, something like 85 to 90 percent of all undergraduates are getting some kind of a discount. Wow. Um, but uh, a lot of my readers at The New York Times are not or they're not getting much of them. Right. So much depends on the audience that you're addressing. And then we talk about cost, what cost means in the higher education context, in my mind. And what many parents are often asking about is how did it come to pass that these institutions have such high costs that they feel like they have to charge us way more money than they used to? So part of what I'm trying to demystify for parents in the book is just to explain to them in as few words as possible, look, this is why um, the costs have gotten so high and you may feel like it is costing you more than you would like to pay. Um, and so let's pivot towards that. The you say eighty-five to ninety percent of people get some kind of discount off the off the sticker price, uh, and just to to, to you, you do a really nice job of sort of disentangling the different you know kind of real merit aid versus uh, kind of coupon merit aid, and then financial aid. Can you can you walk us through that? Sure. So here's the the biggest way that things have changed um, in a generation since, you know, the the parents of today were in college themselves. Um, Back when we were in school, the financial aid system was based mostly around need, right? If your family needed money, maybe you would get some. Um, And need was demonstrated and measured by what was then the old FAF form, but, you know, is now known as the FAFSA. And so the federal government would help determine your need. And then the schools themselves would use a separate form with a bunch more pesky questions to dole out the aid that they had. So what has changed is that there is a whole new branch of financial aid known as merit aid. And merit aid can mean a number of different things. The way that it started was that there were a number of somewhat less selective private colleges and universities that were really suffering because parents who had the ability to pay their full prices were increasingly questioning whether they should have the willingness to do so. Um, And so uh, these schools... um, once they started to experience, you know, sort of an, an erosion of market position, they felt like they needed to give away some discounts, um, whether it was to entice uh, some of those families to stick with the private institutions or to make a grab for the very best students, right? So mm. part of part of um, willingness to pay uh, has to do with, um, you know, whether the best students are willing to pay full price at a more selective school, but not willing to pay full price at a slightly less one, right? So in effect, that they, they were buying students, good students through these discounts. The problem is, once that starts to churn through the marketplace year after year, other competitors have to do the same thing, or they're going to lose even more students. And so over the course of just 20 or 25 years, nearly everybody had to start offering this merit aid, with the exception of the 40 or 50 most selective schools in the country. And what happened to the schools that started doing it first is that their pricing power eroded so much that they now have to give away merit aid to nearly everybody. And listeners can't see the sort of scare quotes around <laughs> merit aid um, that I'm making to myself right now. But, you know, once everybody gets a trophy, um, it, is it even really a scholarship anymore or is it just a coupon? Yeah, and you described this uh, <laughs> hilariously as the Chivas Regal effect, right? You know, we we put our price really high, so it seems like a luxury good. Then we just discount the heck out of it and make us feel like, oh, I got, you know, I got this wonderful discount because I'm so meritorious when, in fact, they're kind of using that merit money to buy my other money that I'm actually paying to the school. Exactly, right? So, you know, the the... The list price is actually meaningful, and it's meaningful 
in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, there is that Shivas effect, right? Which which comes from this um, perhaps apocryphal. I, I literally tried to get Shivas Regal to talk to me about this and they wouldn't. Um, but this story, legend, goes back decades. It says that when Shivas doubled their prices, they quadrupled their sales, right? Um, and so uh, private colleges and universities feel like they need to have, um, you know, an all-in cost of attendance and starts with a six or a seven, or otherwise there will be this perception that they're not actually that classy or that fancy or, or that they don't deliver on value. Um, but so many of those schools are discounted for almost everybody now. So is it meaningless? Well, not if it has that sort of intended marketing and branding effect. Then the other thing you have to think about, right, is that at lots of these schools, there are a small number of people who continue to pay full price and mm -hmm. colleges continue to chase after those folks with all of their might because it makes an enormous economic difference if you know, 10% versus 5% of your student body is paying full price. That's real money if you've got a couple thousand kids around, right? And so they continue to hope against hope and sometimes against all reason that they will be able to find more people who will do that. And sometimes it's international families um, who are not eligible um, for need-based aid or who do, who do not need it, right? Who just want mm -hmm. their kids to be educated in America. And then there is a, you know, small but... Um, but desperate group of parents and families where the kids themselves have had kind of a rough go of it in mm -hmm, high school, mm -hmm. but the families are affluent and they just want someplace for their child to land safely. And they're basically willing to pay whatever uh, to get them there. And so colleges behind the scenes are frantically chasing after, you know, these people with both the ability and the willingness to pay full price. Hmm. And now one of the things that, um, that feels really problematic about this is uh, when we see all this merit money that maybe really isn't meritorious going to to chase uh, to chase students. Um, there's very much a sense that this is coming at the expense of more academically talented but less advantaged kids, right? And I, I mean, I, I read um, a little bit of your background and, and you and I have, a, um, I apparently have two things in common. One, we went to colleges that really dislike each other. Uh, you as an Amherst grad and I as Williams and we'll, we'll have- I'm we'll, so we'll, sorry if that happened. I, I understand. I appreciate that sympathy. <laughs> Believe me, it's reciprocated. Um, and also that we were both uh, Pell Grant students, right? And so- I was not actually Pell. You were not I was on need-based aid, but I was not. Oh, I heard they're on. Okay, so I'm yeah. I I one up you, or I one down you. I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, so my, you know, so in for both of our situations, you know, needed um, the financial support of of other people to make college, or at least those colleges, possible for us, and. It's hard, not at least I, I constantly find myself kind of in two places. One thinking, you know, why should we be spending money? Um, to, to families who don't need it. Uh, and there's, I forget the uh, person you quote in, in, the, uh, in your book who says, uh, the colleges in many ways have pivoted away from, particularly small or you know, not those top 40 schools, have pivoted away from their goal of egalitarianism to one of sheer survival. And I think that's I think that's a helpful point for for listeners to know who you know who may think why why give this money why not give it to, to kids who truly truly need it, and I guess that because at the end of the day if if the colleges need it first and foremost otherwise there's nothing to give to other kids is that kind of the right way to think about that? Right. So I mean, there's so many layers of complexity to this. If you are a uh, a human and a humane um, consumer of this good, right? So uh, like you, I'm a parent who went through this system myself, benefited from need-based aid, will never stop um, expressing gratitude for that as long as I live, want to throw the rope back for people who are like me, and yet is a parent who wants to grab and grasp for every possible advantage and yes, you know, saving of money um, for my kids that I possibly can, right? So that is a that is a complicated moral position to be in. Um, and then I'm also in the business of you know helping consumers make the best possible decision. I am absolutely in favor of people 
getting all of the merit aid they possibly can. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that people do not do that. But there absolutely is an equity issue here. And when you ask the schools about it, well, it sort of depends on where they are in the food chain, right? The, the most selective schools do offer merit aid, made, make a pretty good case, and they often back it up with data. They say, look, um, if our list price is 75 and we're discounting to 60, that person paying $60,000 a year is still paying way more than the cost of educating them when you take into account what we're able to grab from our endowment um, each year or other revenue sources. And so that $60,000 student is still very much cross-subsidizing the student who can only afford to pay 15. Mm -hmm. And we have not seen a degradation in our ability to offer need-based aid to the lowest income students just because we offer merit aid. And they claim to back that up with data, and I've seen some of it, and it seems legitimate, right? But it is hard not to believe that as you get farther down the food chain, um, there is just, uh, you know, a decreasing uh, ability as you dis discount for affluent families to afford to subsidize the lowest of the low income. Um, and so, but it's hard to prove that any given institution is doing, you know, very poorly in that respect. I mean, there is data out there that shows that there are some high endowment schools like Oberlin that have extremely low percentages of Pell Grant recipients. Mm. Uh, Oberlin really needs to answer for itself, frankly, but I spent years trying to get them to talk to me on the record for the book and they refused. We appreciate your hard efforts there. Uh, maybe they'll, maybe they'll hear our, my little podcast and, and turn over a new leaf. Um, <laughs> maybe they'll feel guilty. Um, well, speaking of guilty, let's one of the you make a point in the book that um, when talking about money, talking about money is really talking about feelings. And you you point out the feelings that are are way too often riddled through, you know, the whole pro this whole process of college, both for parents and for for kids of, of fear, guilt and snobbery or elitism. Do you want to, can you unpack that for us a little bit? And um, I, I found it so helpful to put a finger on that, um, to, to really, to, to point out to anyone who reads your, this, this wonderful book that it's not just you. I mean, this is, these are the feelings that naturally arise um, in the system that we currently have. Sure. So to start from the beginning, right? Yeah. Every money conversation involves a lot of feelings. And the more money that's involved, the more feelings that are in the mix. And if it involves our spouse or our kids, especially, then they're going to be exponentially more feelings. Um, and, you know, I must attribute the money equals feelings equation to my friend Carl Richards, who wrote uh, a great book called The Behavior Gap and who I edited at The New York Times for years. Hmm. So you have to start there, right? You have to have an internal emotional reckoning and an emotional reckoning with your spouse, if you have one, and your ex, I'm afraid, uh, if you have one of those, uh, to make sure that everybody's on the same page or that at least that you're being intensely honest with yourself about hmm. it. And what I found again and again when talking to parents was that, you know, one of three things was bubbling up or often all three things simultaneously. Right. The first is fear, fear that if as parents and as a family, we do not make the right choice or send the kid to the right place, that everything that we have worked for to create a um uh, you know, sort of a, a set of scaffolding around our children and a safety net underneath will all fall apart, right? The wrong choice will lead to that kid tumbling down the social class ladder that we have spent generations trying to climb up or that um, our child won't be able to leap a few rungs up the social mm -hmm. class ladder from, you know, the working class place where we find ourselves now, right? So there's fear of that, fear of falling or not rising. There is the guilt around the fact that maybe our parents did it for us and just were able to write a check for it or save the money and that we may not be able to do it for our kids. And so we end up going into um, you know, crazy amounts of debt or turning other backflips um, in a way that may be detrimental to our family over the long term because we feel like 
we just owe it to them. And we're failures as parents if we don't give them essentially whatever they want, right? Um, and then there's the snobbery and elitism around, you know, private versus public and, you know, name brands versus non-name brands, or just a school that, you know, people in your region don't know much about and your kids or or maybe you when it comes time for the Facebook reveal and the, you know, the rear windshield bumper sticker, um, you know, wanting to do something that will uh, appeal to snobs or elitists because maybe you're a snob and elitist yourself and you just don't want to reckon with that. Or maybe you're being more practical about that and you're saying, well, I'm not, I'm no slot snob uh, and I'm not an elitist, but I'm really worried about those people out there in graduate school land or who have the super fancy jobs who might look askance at my child's state school education, um, but might be more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt if they go to one of the most selective schools in the land. Right. And so these are the things that just, you know, pulse course through our brains and we might as well listen to them because it's hard to make them go away and so part of what i try to do and this is you know all of part two of the book mm -hmm. is just kind of walk people through <laughs> okay how how will these voices speak to you in your head and what should you say back to them i love it i love it it's funny my my wife's uh, um orchestra spouse, she calls him, uh, her stand partner, she plays second violin, uh, works for NIH, and his oldest of three is just about to start the college process. And he realized that she was looking at University of Toronto as well as a bunch of um, schools in the States and realized that were she to choose Toronto rather than going in, in, the, in the US, that he'd be able to retire within two years. <laughs> Right. And you do such a nice job of, of, of pointing up, you know, the trade offs um, that's, you know, the, and the pressures that are that so many Americans face. Uh, and I think that some of the takeaway advice seemed to be simply to start these conversations early and to be as honest and open as we can about what our expectations are as parents, what it for, you know, our kids. Uh, I love that story about Anne Garcia and her twins because they ended up in such, uh, uh, people should read it. It's a really inspiring story of how this family so successfully navigating getting both kids to places um, that were great for them in ways that didn't blow up anyone's budget. And, and the, the kids end up being incredibly satisfied with their experience there. Uh, and it's just, you know, put it, you know, climbing back in bed and pulling the head over your covers isn't probably a great uh, long-term plan. <laughs> um, now you do so. So pivoting away from kind of dark emotions um, to, to and price and cost to to value. Um, you have this really nice way of sort of the pie chart, uh, what I kind of think of the ROI, what are things that are uh, worth investing for? Um, and so you're, if I remember correctly, your pie chart, you talk about learning and kinship and then sort of jobs and all that stuff. Can you sort of frame that up for folks? Because I found that a really useful way to look at those things in a, in a concrete way. So it, as you said before, it isn't the swirl of emotions that we can't look at. Right. So before you do anything else, you have to define for yourself what college even is, right? What is this generally for purposes of my book, you know, residential undergraduate experience that you are shopping for, right? What is the definition of success? And how much is enough? And again and again, when I talk to people, it sort of came back to three things that they thought that they were buying or trying to buy. Number one, they thought they were buying an education, right? Mm. Um, they are going to college to get into a classroom and to have their minds taken apart and reassembled piece by piece by expert instructors into a different and better version of a brain that will help them become a better and a more well-adjusted person, right? They want their minds blown and their minds grown, right? So, uh, Oh, so I like that. So that's number one, yeah. right? Number two, you go to college to meet your people, right? Mm -hmm. You are seeking kinship, a second family, uh, the group of peers who will show up at your wedding, who will carry your casket, 
and we'll do everything in between um, from you know helping you find your next job when you're out on the street to investing in your startup um, you know when you've got a business plan right and it's not just peers it's mentors um, some of the best research that's been done on undergraduate education uh, you know comes back kind of again and again to the extreme power of you know finding a, a mentor who will help guide you, especially through the first couple of years of your career, right? So you're seeking people who are older and smarter and wiser than you um, to also be part of your kin as you move off into the world. And then the third one is, you know, you go to college for the credential, right? I mean, we have a huge crisis of completion in the United States where, you know, roughly half of people don't even get the degree that they show up for. I begin with the assumption that, that my readers generally, you know, their kids are more likely than not going to finish, right? So what does the credential actually mean? And, yeah, and I can jump in there for one second, because going sure. back to the, the the connection and the and the mentorship, you know, that you point out that 19% of freshmen don't come back for a sophomore year at all. So, you know, for, for parents, that's 10, 20, 30, 50, $70,000, right? That, that might be just flushed. And then, and now where is the kid? And so this, these questions that you do such a nice job of, of, of framing up, but also how to answer these questions, you know, in my world, people always talk about fit, which parents tend to think of as, you know, people in my world sort of downplaying expectations. You don't want me to go to Harvard because you don't think, you know, but that that all that fit really is that that connection and the mentorship that you talk about, because I just can't imagine anything more discouraging than kid going off to, to, to you know, to start start college and hope to, you know, have their mind blown and grown, as you say, and then to come back. And, and it, so often because they didn't look at the things that you suggest people look at. They didn't get to that. Um, anyway, just, I, you know, it, I, back to you, but I thought, I think it's such an excellent point you raised. Yeah. So, you know, on the completion front, I mean, there is data about this. You can go to the college scorecard and other sources of data and find out what percentage of the first year students are not returning and what percentage of people take more than four years or six years to get through any given place. Um, but hopefully, if you're asking the right questions and you sort of define success for yourself ahead of time, you have shopped accordingly and you have selected a school um, that is going to give you the best chance of being happy, which is a, and, and affordable, right? Which is, you know, which are the best ways to make sure uh, that you stick and it sticks. Um, but it's absolutely, you know, worth seizing on um, that data and that question, right? So when it comes to, um, you know, the third element of this, the credential, right? Some people uh, go into the process um, with a very kind of practical head of steam, which is that um, uh, we are, you know, a working class family or a middle class family that's just kind of hanging on for dear life. And uh, what our child wants and needs more than anything else um, is the kind of degree that will give them the best opportunity to find stable uh, employment that will make them happy and will make them um, will make it as likely as possible that they can stay employed, right? So, uh, you know, they are going to college to become a teacher. They are going to college to become an accountant. They are going to college to become an engineer. They are going to college to become a nurse, right? And so, what you're looking for um, is is a credential that will be meaningful uh, in the employment marketplace and kind of nothing more and nothing less. Um, but then um, there are people for whom, um, you know, their 17-year-old wants nothing more than to work for Goldman Sachs someday um, or to get a big pile of venture capital money uh, from, uh, you know, the most prestigious uh, venture capital firms or, uh, you know, to, to um, become a part of the, you know, incubators in, in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley. And when you go looking at the data, at some of those places and the research that's been done about how they hire uh, a radically disproportionate amount of money, jobs, positions at, you know, some of these sort of nameplate employers go to people from the 40 or 50 most selective schools in the country. And so, you know, we can debate until the end of time whether 
the people who get these jobs were already smart enough at 16 and 17 that they would have, you know, gotten those jobs anyway. Mm -hmm. But the facts are the facts, right? And so it sure seems like these schools, uh, you know, give you a second look and a third look. And even if you don't want to work for Goldman Sachs or become a baseball general manager, those gigs too are, are disproportionately filled by people from the most selective undergraduate institutions now. Even if you don't want to do that, um, you know, you may feel like uh, as a parent or as a child spending a bunch more money to have all those people in my network someday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I'm a financial planner or a psychiatrist or or, or whatever, right, mm-hmm. um, would be worth a, a whole lot of money, right? So, you know, it's hard to quantify this, but um, this is part of what people think about. And I don't think there's anything wrong with anybody who thinks that practically and perhaps even a way that feels sort of like a mercenary uh, about this education, right? Because if it's going to cost over $300,000 after taxes per child, Mm -hmm. we have to be rigorously practical and intensely honest with ourselves about what the point of the exercise is. Because you can't just go around writing checks this large without knowing what the hell it is you are doing. It's such a terrific point. And, and it's interesting, you know, you, you've sort of pointed out, you know, people who are, you know, Goldman or McKinsey bound, and that's their entire raison d'etre, right? And then you have other, you know, people who are, I, I, I want to become the, the woman, the gal, girl who wanted to become a veterinarian and then moved into other work. And, and, and people who are like, I, I want that education. I want a good job. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to go be a Goldman Sachs. And that, um, because w- there's no one college that's going to be the, that can meet all of those different expectations for different people, right? Some colleges do some things better than others. I mean, I love the, the piece about the colleges that do the most for the American dream of lifting kids, you know, out of the bottom quartile into the top quartile, the bottom quartile into the, into the top 1%. And to, to, to the idea of you can actually get at, this information. There is data that suggests this university is good for this is a bad fit. One of my, you had an example in here about um, kids who are f- from less resource families who are trying to be on a mobility track that going to universities where it's really dominated by fraternities and sororities with a big, um, you know, with a, a sort of a big social culture may really be a very poor fit <laughs> if you, if, if that's your, if your, if your goal is really to try to use this as an education and, and, and jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the great thing about large flagship state universities is that there's often something for everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, actually finding it and seizing it, um, those are both challenges that are not small. Mm-hmm. Um, but the danger at a place like that is that you show up and you decide, I mean, think about it this way. The parent thinks that the child is going for the credential and to have their mind grown and their mind blown. But what the kid is really going for is the kinship, right? And often at those universities, the quickest way to find kinship is to pledge the Greek system very quickly Mm -hmm. and then, you know, spend the next four years um, devoting the majority or the vast majority of your non-classroom time to your social life. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I, I make no judgments here. There are a lot of people who find their way to fantastic careers and lifelong relationships um, through the Greek system. And, you know, some of those fraternities and sororities do stand for very good values and service work. Um, but if you are a lower income individual and you're not getting, you know, a scholarship from um, the fraternity or the sorority, uh, there may well be a lot of pressure to spend a lot of money and spend a lot of time doing things that are not necessarily a net positive to you doing well in your credential seeking and having your mind grown and blown as much as it might be otherwise. So this is a risk. It's not a certainty. And all I want for my readers is for them to go into all of this with eyes wide open because there is just way too little practical information for the consumer, right? We know more than we used to about how the admission systems work, but we know very little about the actual value that the schools deliver and how best to maximize it for ourselves. And so I just want people to have their eyes wide open about all of this. Mm. I think that's terrific. 
I, I should say for, for folks who are, are looking to pick up the book, one of the things that I keep coming back to is you provide not only kind of these are the resources where you can go and get this information that's not, you know, the, the university and the college will obviously present the facts it wants to present. But, you know, the common data set, you know, uh, this, the, the dashboards, I mean, the different places where people can actually get you know, like a Morningstar review about a college, right? You know, how how do they do with retention? How do they do retention with low with kids of, of lower income and with with underrepresented minorities? What's the job placement? Blah blah blah. Um, and you also put a bunch of uh, really good questions in of, of things to ask, like you know, because peers are so important. You have a wonderful little piece there about questions to ask. To how easy or hard is it for people to make friends? I just I thought it was it, it was so it was interesting because um, there's both this financial piece to it, but there's also this sort of um, kind of psychological sociological piece of how to ask the questions that give you the information that really is meaningful to you. I thought it was I think it's just great. Well, thank you for noticing that, right? Because it's it's it feels kind of it's strange at first glance to combine those things. But again, if one of the three main points of going to college um, is to acquire a whole group of people who will pick you up on their shoulders and carry you through life, then you have to ask questions about the sort of basic units of friendship and how schools encourage social interaction. Because if one of the main reasons or the only reason you're going is um, to acquire that group of people um, who will stay with you through life, then, you know, that that's where your value is going to be derived from. And if you're going to write a check for up to $300,000 for that, then you need some data. You are entitled to it, in fact. And if the schools are not measuring it, if they can't tell you what percentage of people come to reunions or how often alumni engage, uh, you know, with their alma mater, thus, you know, proving how tied they feel to the peers who they experience this undergraduate education with, then they are doing it wrong. Um, and uh, you are not wrong for asking the pointed question. You are entitled to that information. Hmm. I should I should say I also like to give a uh, I was pleased to see and would love to give a shout out to uh, Marie Bigham and uh, Julie uh, Lifcott Hames and their I thought really nice insights about diversity at, at colleges. You know, because because as, as you as you point out, so many universities have put tremendous resources into making a diverse class, right, incoming classes, but a lot of work still to be done to make the experience, the, the, well, for folks in there that there's actually, um, you know, the experience getting the benefits of diversity. I guess you, in the book you say of how, of trying, what are the questions to ask or what's the data to look at, at how atomized are campuses, right? We're all, this, these folks are here and those folks are there and never the twain shall mix, you know? Sure. And, you know, I would just encourage, you know, parent shoppers to, to think about it this way. Um, it was revelatory for me to try to figure out exactly how to make the case for um, purchasing diversity, right? For, mm -hmm. for making diversity mm -hmm. a, a consumer criteria. And what it came down to for me was that I thought back to the people who taught me the most, um, peers who taught me the most and um, and the ones who have kind of stayed with me the mm -hmm. longest. And what I realized was that every single one of them, there was something fundamentally different about them um, from me. And sometimes it was race. Sometimes it was religion. Sometimes it was sexual orientation. Sometimes it was sort of political predilections. Sometimes it was just kind of mere geography mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. the fact that they were an immigrant. Right. But I realized that a, a, a big part of what attracted me to them as an undergraduate um, was that there was this sort of, you know, mystery um, that inspired uh, curiosity in me. Now, I grew up to be a journalist, right? I'm curious for a living. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I, you know, I'm probably You're on the built that way. <laughs> right. I'm probably like on the lunatic fringe of curiosity, right? But just getting windows into other people's lives and other people's point of views um, was just a huge part of what was literally enriching for me. Uh, e even, you know, while I was, uh, you know, paying a discounted rate at Amherst College, mm -hmm. uh, I feel like for that alone, from that alone, I got more than my money's worth. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it, it took me a couple decades to get it through my fixed skull that that was a big part of what I derived there. Um, so part of what I tried to do in the diversity chapter was just, you know, get people to ask questions about this so they can begin to reframe their own perspective and maybe even reframe their teenager's perspective about part of the point of the exercise. And part of the point of the exercise is to learn stuff about people who are different than you and how mm-hmm. they think. Because mm-hmm. when you get out into the world, whatever it is that you do, um, most people you encounter will not be exactly the same as you and the people from your house of worship in your nice little upper middle class community uh, yeah, yeah, that you yeah. grew up in, that you might have grown up in as a teen. And I, I, I it's, so, it's, it's such a good, it's such a good point. I mean, um, I, I love the, I love the uh, economic argument for an educational argument for diversity. I also like the sensitivity you had in there in that, you know, for people who can't see me, you know, I'm a white, you know, balding white guy. Right. Um, but, but also for, for, for families whose kids are of color and this again, you know, back to um, Marie and, and Julie of, of what are the questions that families, you know, kids, families of color, can ask so that their kids are not there so that their kids are not there to benefit other people that their kids are there to you know benefit themselves and if there's a if there's if there's a mutually beneficial awesome but that you know my you know my my black kid from la is not coming to amherst massachusetts just to benefit someone from amherst you know that i that that how families of color or lower income families or ones or both or you know sexual orientation so on and so forth can find that can ask the questions to find the right place because we know the world's a little more fraught than we like it to be. And, and for good learning, you know, this is sort of putting a pen on my book a little bit. Good learning can't happen when people don't feel psychologically safe. Right. Yes. And if I can segue just a little bit, um, your treatment about, uh, about uh, mental health, I thought was awfully important. I was frankly blown away by the numbers that you talk about of kids who are showing up at, you know, you know, so highly, highly successful kids, students, but who are also troubled by mental health issues. And um, we want, uh, we want to go to places <laughs> where colleges um, support those well, but also um, make sure that the kids are, are going to place with eyes wide open where they're not having, you know, if, you know, tokenism and, and suffering, you know, some psychological injury when they're actually there to get educated and connect with folks. Do you want to talk a little bit about just mental health? Cause you, you talk about that is this might be something worth paying for. And I hadn't put it in those terms, but I think because there are so many people, even highly selective students, highly uh, um, uh, successful students who have anxiety, who have depression, it's it's something that they should not overlook when they're trying to choose the right college. Sure. Um, can I go back and just add one piece on diversity? Um, sure. Responding to something that you said. Um, so as a non-balding white man, um, <laughs> you know, it, it it's easy for me to frame things the way that I just did through yeah, you, yeah, but yeah. I also attempted to adopt the frame and talk to many parents of color uh, about their frame. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, it is not uncomplicated, right? Because if you think about the basic unit of, of friendship or social relationships mm-hmm. in any given undergraduate institution, residential one, the first unit of friendship is the roommate, right? And, um, Right there, there is an incredible amount that's sort of fraught because social media has allowed people to sort of pair off during their high school senior years um, in, you know, admitted student forums. And what we find again and again is that people pair off with people who look exactly like them. Hmm. Right. And so the schools have a difficult decision to make. Do they want to encourage diversity within room groups within dorm rooms because that might be good for both yeah, people yeah, involved yeah, yeah. um you know good to find in any number of ways or do you want to allow people to pair off in a way that will make them most comfortable and so you know there's a, been a bunch of research done about <coughs> what kind of um, results um, occur when you put um differing people or more similar people together in the same room group um but there is no clear direction uh, among undergraduate institutions. So whether you are a person of color or not, um, it sort of behooves you to ask the question about how the schools handle mm-hmm. even that very mm-hmm. small thing, because mm-hmm. it sends a strong signal about what they stand for. 
I love it. I love um, it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the mental health thing mm-hmm. blew my mind as well. And it, it started for me, uh, you know, several years ago when I was addressing a group of uh, college presidents um, who had come to visit the New York Times. And I started with a sort of standard icebreaker that I use with strangers um, in, in this sort of context. And I say, you know, tell me about the the thing about your job that has surprised you the most uh, or that surprised you the most when you got it. And somebody raised their hand and said, I could not believe the percentage of students who are showing up here with prescriptions for psych meds. And the room just sort of broke into immediate conversation. And it was difficult to like corral them again after that. But then I started asking about this. And it turns out that um, there is essentially no end to the demand for mental health services on Hmm. undergraduate um, campuses. And this is a good thing, right? People are aware they are unashamed. There are people getting to and through college who might not have a generation ago. And this is all to the good. Um, but this is not like a core competency of your average college president. Um, and they do not want to. And I'm not sure we should expect them to necessarily be in the business of, of providing unlimited um, mental health care. But then again, you know, we send our kids away and and we expect them to come home in one piece and to come come home at all. Right. And so it has become this problem that that nobody can get their heads around. And so you have to ask some specific questions. Right. Like how long is the wait time to actually see somebody? Do you cap the number of visits with a counselor per semester or per year? Um, Who are these people and are the undergraduates actually satisfied with the quality of care? And if you're sending your kid to a rural location, is there going to be an an off campus provider and and how would they get there to visit that person? Um, you know, telehealth and telemental health has gotten a, a lot easier. Um, and uh, just uh, right now, uh, you know, as we speak, um, there is a bill that's about to pass Congress that's going to make it easier from a regulatory perspective for mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. to continue to get mental health services via Zoom. Um, and so I expect that this will get a little bit better, um, but you have to go in with eyes wide open, especially if your kid has experienced even a little bit of um, challenge with mental health. I know we have a few minutes left, uh, but let me run through a couple a couple things. We, you know, we have listeners who are going to watch every dollar that they pay, and and others who money's not an a, an issue. It, it, I mean, obviously the whole book is is replete, but you know, a, a quick one thing that for for each of those audiences um, that they want to be sure that they don't overlook as a as a consideration. I would say one crucial thing is don't discount options out of hand without having researched them. There are all sorts of people with lower incomes who assume that colleges with high list prices might never be affordable. And they don't bother applying and don't bother putting the financial aid application in um, and never find out that there might be huge discounts based on needs. By that same token, um, you know, middle and upper middle class families uh, don't understand that there is a significant amount of merit aid available at many selective private and colleges, colleges and universities that can help bring costs down. And then there are snobs and elitists who sort of turn up their nose at the, the state university system or the branch of one nearby without investigating, oh, there's an honors college over here with a couple of faculty members who make sure that you know the smartest students at this institution get a boutique experience and are treated like the academic stars that they would be. Um, hmm. Maybe I should go check that out and see if the students there actually have a great experience and they persist through the program. And is that a way um, you know, for uh, my child to get a really great experience at, at, at a discount? Right. Um, I think there's just too much kind of closing off of options, which I understand. Right. Because the data is so scant and there are so many choices and we're all so busy and preoccupied, particularly right now um, when we're just trying to keep from getting sick or recover from getting sick. And so I get um, but all the more reason to start this um, sooner and think a little harder about it, because it is one of the most significant decisions we ever make as a family. It certainly is. 
Well, let me end here with uh, your friend, uh, your pal, Carl Richards. I like, can you talk about his little Venn diagram, which I thought was such a wonderful way for us to think about this process. I, I, um, I, I want to write this out and put this on my own board for families to, to, to think about. Sure. Um, so there are two bubbles. Um, there are things that matter. And then there are things that you can control. <laughs> and there's only a little tiny overlapping space of things that matter and things that you can control. But it's that little tiny space that is what you should actually focus on. Right. Uh, it, it strikes me as a financial guru's version uh, in Venn diagram form, mind you, of the serenity prayer. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's like the financial serenity prayer. <laughs> it's a finan- there we go. You, can, you, you and Carl can, uh, can trademark that, the financial serenity yeah. prayer. Well, uh, Ron Lieber, what a, what a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, folks, this is a really, really, really good book. And we could, I could have asked another 37 questions, but um, usually podcasts in, in, in 40 hour increments are not where people want to go. But, but honest to gosh, everything from, you know, athletics to should I, when should I get a college counselor? Should I get a college counselor to, to ROTC? To, I mean, just it, the, the whole thing is in here, soup to nuts. And, and importantly, as I mentioned before, not just the nuts and bolts and the finance of it, but a huge amount of wisdom in this, because you, as you said so well, you know, as you shared so well, that, that money are feelings and, and they both matter in this most important just financial decision that families will ever make. So, so get the book, buy it early and start having those conversations. I can't think of a better resource to help families have these important conversations with their kids. So then the end, as you, you say, the last chapter is hope, which I love. And you, you say, I hope you look back on this process someday and know the price you paid was worth it. And that's, um, it's, it's, it's something we can all use and I'm very grateful to have you join us and to put this much time and thought and heart into this terrific book. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words more than you can know. And uh, I can't wait uh, for people to get their hands on it and start putting it to work. I want to raise a not small army of people who feel entitled to better information and at the end of the day, more hope and serenity about the decisions that they are making. Something we all get behind. Terrific. Thanks a million, Ron. It's great. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you.